Let me get you to open the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 17. You'll find it in the bulletin or in one of the pew Bibles. I'm going to read verses 22 to 34. Please stand. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him And find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we pray that you'd be pleased to send your Holy Spirit upon us this morning that you would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace that we might hear your word, Father, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The name of this morning's sermon is The Mission to Athens, The Unknown God, and the name of the series is Exploring Acts, Truth That Transforms. Uh, if you're a longtime member of MetroCrest, or even if you've only attended for a couple of years, you'll know that last year, in uh, 2020, we were involved in a series of sermons looking at the book of Acts. And I think about October 24th, uh, ruling elder Bill Camp stood in this pulpit and preached from the first half of Acts chapter 17. So I'm just picking up 
where Bill left off back in October. A lot has happened since October. I listened to Bill's sermon, watched it on the Facebook channel, and was uh, uh, moved by his sermon, and also just by how much has happened since that day. Uh, So much that as he stood preaching that morning, he didn't anticipate, he couldn't have anticipated. Uh, Things were going on that uh, he didn't know about, uh, that we were only beginning to understand and realize as God led us. Like Larry said a moment ago, God leads us. Uh, He is the one who orders our steps from the very beginning. Long before we are aware of him, he is aware of us. And he is ordering the steps of our life as individuals and as a community. So we're picking up where we left off. And I hope you will uh, join with me as we look at what we have to learn from the book of Acts. A good case could be made that this truth that transforms in the book of Acts could be described as a manual on Christian ministry. Uh, If you follow along in the book of Acts over and over again, we see the apostles doing the things that they write about in their letters. For instance, uh, in Acts chapters 2 and 3, you see uh, activities of the church, the fellowship of the church as the church began doing what the church is supposed to do and what life was like. It's a stirring description of church life, especially the the end of uh, Acts chapter 2. There's a beautiful description of church life, including the fellowship we share. And I am thrilled that the McAnally's and Withers Families have agreed to help us sort of renew some of our fellowship at Metrocrest. COVID tried very hard to put an end to Christian fellowship. He did, COVID did not succeed, but it certainly put a big dent in our ability to get together and to do the kinds of things that we see in Acts chapter 2. Just the simple act of getting together. Well, you know what? I no longer take that quite so much for granted as I used to. Uh, COVID has made it difficult for us to be able to come together and share fellowship. I'm so glad to see folks back at church who have been unable to come because of their concern about COVID, a concern that we've all shared. It's wonderful to see people trickling back into church, people who've been able to participate online, but only, only now are able to come back in person. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I look forward to hearing from uh, Joe and Kristen, Steve and Liz, as they begin planning some real-life, in-person fellowship opportunities. Please pray for them, that the Lord will lead them and enable us to be a part of some of the things they come up with. I can't wait to see it. In Acts chapter 6... We hear about the creation of the order of deacons, and it's a beautiful story of a of a, a need in the church, church in Jerusalem, a need in the church that led the Holy Spirit to move the church to create this special office. And I'm thrilled that uh, God willing, we will have a new class of deacons to join uh, Bill and Daniel Greiser, who today compose the active. Board of Deacons at Metrocrest, and uh, Bill and Daniel have been calling out, uh, please, please send us some help. And I'm thrilled that uh, God has made it possible for the church to present to you guys uh, four uh, extremely qualified candidates. And I hope over the next uh, couple of months you'll have a chance to get to know them well uh, as we get ready for the election in May, especially that you'll get to know them in advance of that election, get to know who they are. And there will be biographical material and I think other opportunities here, testimonies 
Uh, Again, this is just Acts chapter 6, Christian ministry lived out. Um, in, uh, later in Acts, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read about the apostles appointing elders. Uh, they were really just following the practice of the Jewish community when they were led by the Holy Spirit to appoint elders who would serve in the church. And again, this is just a description of Christian ministry as it was lived out among the apostles. And uh, it's also thrilling to know that by God's grace, we hopefully will have a new elder to join our session in helping to give the spiritual direction of our church as Larry Perry is presented by the session for your consideration. Uh, There are nomination forms, as David mentioned, out in the lobby. For those of you from Christ Church, you will not be familiar with this process, and I want to explain to you that those forms are for you to take pray about, and then you can nominate all the people on the list, some of the people on the list, or one of the people on the list by checking the boxes by their names. Uh, We want you to pray about it. We want you to consider what the Bible uh, tells us about office in the church. But again, this is just living out what Acts describes. Deacons, elders, gifted people sent by the Lord to minister to his church. So a very good case could be made that the book of Acts is a manual on Christian ministry. I want to stress, however, that it could also be said, I think equally so, that Acts is a manual on Christian mission. Because the aspect of ministry that uh, the book of Acts focuses on particularly is not so much how the church runs, although it has a lot to say about that, It has a lot to say, even more to say, about how the church does the special work that the Lord Jesus Christ began and has now committed to the likes of us. How do we actually live out the mission that Jesus began, and Acts chapter 1 describes it, and how do we do that work in the crazy, diverse, complex world in which we live. Well, I think the book of Acts, particularly the latter chapters, describe helpfully the way we do mission. Now, it's not always a quid, an exact equal. It requires creativity. It requires thinking about it. But actually, if you, if you really look closely, what you'll see in the last few chapters of Acts Uh, you'll see over and over again the Lord leading His church through a whole lot of different missions, a whole lot of different churches doing the work that has been entrusted to the church. And today we're going to look particularly at the mission to Athens. In this manual on Christian mission, we will learn about what the Lord led Paul and the apostles to do as they encountered the diverse, complex society in first century Athens. Athens, if Rome was the political capital of the ancient world, Athens was the intellectual capital. It was the cradle of philosophy. It was the cradle of democracy to this day. Uh, Democracy comes from a, a Greek concept that they had come up with 
and had implemented in the ancient Greek world, the ancient uh, society of which they were the intellectual capital. And it's still a a way of thinking about uh, government, politics, uh, that shapes our reality to this day. Uh, So it's an interesting thing to realize that Paul went there. The church was led by the Holy Spirit in mission to go to first century Athens, to this extremely interesting, very important city. Uh, Acts chapter 17 begins with the mission to Thessalonica in verse 1. Verse 10, the mission to Berea. Verse 16, Paul goes into Athens. This is the past, part of the passage that Bill preached on several months ago. Paul was in Athens. He moved among them. He went and saw the synagogue, which was his custom, but he also saw the uh, monuments to the gods of the ancient Greeks. He, he saw the, the temples, the, the uh, places of worship. He saw the places where the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers all conversed. Uh, he went to the Areopagus. That's where he's going to be speaking in verse 22, which was the not only the marketplace for commercial activity, but also the marketplace for ideas. And the people of Greece, it says in uh, chapter 17, verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, like I said, I think the book of Acts is a, is a really good manual for Christian mission. And I think here's an example. Uh, Dallas is not exactly the capital, the intellectual capital of our culture, but it's certainly symptomatic of our culture. And like the Athenians, I think even here in Dallas, which is a fairly conservative community in many ways, I think it might still be true of us that all the people of Dallas and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We're all about new things. We're all about new ideas. We're all about getting rid of the old things. I mean, that's our culture increasingly. If it's old, it's got to be bad. Younger people today have actually soaked this into their way of thinking and outdated is the worst thing you can be. You want to be cutting edge. You want to be the next thing. Dallas has bought into that, I'm I'm sad to say, as did Athens. So what we're going to see in this mission to Athens is the apostolic church engaging in an area that we have a lot in common with. We have a lot in common with first century Athens. We have a lot in common with other missions that we'll be looking at. We have a lot in common with Athens. So Paul goes, he, he walks among the uh, monuments, the temple areas, the, the different uh, places of commerce and intellectual activity. He goes there and he looks around them and he's taking careful note of them. He observes everything that he sees. Uh, he is uh, there to observe and to learn, but he's also there to proclaim. Paul is a missionary. He is one who takes seriously Jesus' call in Luke, for instance, to be a witness. What Larry just did for us, 
Paul sought to do, to give witness, to testify to Jesus Christ. And so in Acts 17, verse 22, that's what Paul does. It says in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, and he continues. He goes and he stands and he gives testimony. And what he gives testimony to is is very interesting. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That I think has significance for us in the crazy world we live in. We're also proclaiming one who is sadly an unknown God. You know, if you go around modern day Dallas, if you go downtown Dallas and you see the the Thanksgiving uh, ziggurat, which is a, a monument to Thanksgiving in some vague sense, uh, if you go down there and you look around, you will see a, a few uh, places of identifiable worship. Uh, you'll see some of those things. But what you'll be surrounded by is our culture's worship of this world. Our culture's worship of money and things and power. That's what our culture worships more and more and more. We might not call it a temple, but if you look around, the tallest buildings in downtown Dallas tend to be banks. And it would be, I think, fair to say our culture worships money. We have a lot of it. We seem to have, we, we seem to think we have more of it than we do, but we worship it. We think it can fix everything. Money. Get a pandemic, you throw thousands and thousands and ultimately trillions of dollars to solve the pandemic. Trillions of dollars. Trillions of dollars in debt. My only point in that is our culture tends to think money can fix anything. And that's what a lot of us spend most of our time doing, worshiping at the altar of money. It's what we want more than anything. Even Christians. Even Christians, we can begin to think that money is the most important thing in the world. We can begin to make decisions solely on the basis of money. So Paul was there in a situation not unlike ours. And he goes and he proclaims the truth. He speaks the truth. He brings this message from the Lord uh, to this troubled, confused place. A place that was actually worshiping an unknown God. They didn't really know God. Some scholars think they had built this altar because they didn't want to neglect a God. There, there were all these gods in Athens, dozens of gods. Everywhere you look, there was a, the huge Parthenon still there in, in Athens at the top of the Acropolis. Beautiful temple that had a beautiful statue of Athena. And there were other smaller, less known temples all over Athens. It was full of temples. But they were so concerned about it, they built an altar to this unknown God. So they didn't want to leave a God out. So there might be one they hadn't built a temple to or an altar to. So they built an altar to the unknown God. Paul says they were very, very religious. They, 
the word could actually be uh, also translated superstitious. They were deeply concerned about all these different things, and yet they were in the dark about them. So Paul goes, and he is there observing all this, and uh, we read in the previous section that Paul, in verse 16, was provoked by this. Uh, the, the word translated provoked is only used here in the book of Acts this one time. That same word, peroxeneto, uh, can also be translated disturbed, troubled, stirred. The idea is what he saw made a profound difference on him. It impacted him. He observed it and it stirred him, disturbed him, troubled him, and provoked him. There's some connection to the idea of anger. He was provoked, he was disturbed by it when he saw it. And so he stands to deliver to this ailment an apostolic prescription. There was an apostolic prescription over and over again that we see in the book of Acts. What did the apostles do when they saw the world in which they lived? And what are we called to do in the world in which we live? How do we respond to our crazy culture? How do we respond to the confusion around us, the complexity around us? Well, verses 24 to 31 are an apostolic prescription. What is the apostolic prescription? Well, it turns out the apostolic prescription was to proclaim the truth in the face of confusion and superstition and foolishness and ignorance. Particularly, there are 20 sermons. So what I'm trying to do this morning is what Paul did do on the Areopagus in ancient first century Athens. He stood and he began to speak. Uh, the book of Acts records 20 different sermons. Beginning with uh, uh, Acts chapter uh, 2, where Peter delivers the first post-Pentecost Christian sermon where he goes through and describes Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. It had happened just 50 days earlier. Can you imagine? Easter, 50 days later, Pentecost, Peter stood and delivered the very first example of what I'm trying to do this morning. He spoke the truth. Truth that transforms he began to do what Christians have been doing ever since, what the church is called to do, to speak the truth. It is a special responsibility for those who are called to be preachers and teachers and elders and deacons in the church, officers. It's a particular responsibility that we share, but it's actually something every Christian is called to do. We're all called to speak truth that transforms in the midst of a crazy, mixed-up, and confused world. We're all called to engage the altars, the false temples, the false gods all around us. So Paul did what the church has always done. He spoke the truth. Uh, the title that Bill gave to his sermon uh, on October 25th included this idea of preaching Jesus. He actually said as the introduction to his sermon that he would, he would title it Preach Jesus. And he said that could actually be the title of every sermon. Preach Jesus, because the apostolic prescription to every situation, every mission opportunity, every mission need is to preach Jesus Christ. Not to preach the traditions of men, but to preach Christ 
as he's revealed in the scriptures. The same man who wrote the book of Acts, the, the disciple Luke, Dr. Luke, also wrote the Gospel of Luke, who we spent three weeks looking at over uh, late Lent and Easter. We looked at what Luke had to say. And if you were here last Sunday on Easter Sunday, you'll know that the idea of mission was very important to Luke. And he makes that point in his gospel, and he continues that point here in the book of Acts. The church has a response to this desperately needy world. The church has a response to those who are feeling in the dark after the unknown God trying desperately to find their way somewhere. Actually, that's the way Paul describes it. Uh, he's, he's speaking to people who didn't know the Scriptures, but he's speaking the Scripture to them. They didn't know the categories of the Old Testament. They didn't know about the prophets. Yet, Paul, here in this section, proclaims what the Scriptures teach. So he went here to the intellectual capital of the ancient world and he begins to describe what the Bible teaches. I don't imagine this is the entire sermon. It was probably a good bit longer than the two or three minutes it would take you to read this section. But he goes and he teaches what the scriptures teach. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Isn't that the message of the Old Testament? Isn't that Genesis? Isn't that what we hear again and again on the lips of the prophets? That there's a God who created everything. Rather than us bringing him our little offerings as though he needed them, he gives us everything we have. Rather than him being the, the Lord over a tribe or a particular group of people, we learn in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find, that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. It's like the old story uh, someone said, I, d I don't believe in God. And someone said, It's all right, God believes in you. Because it's true. None of us would be here were it not for the sovereign hand of the God, verse 28, in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul speaking to a, a whole marketplace full of pagans, none of whom knew the scriptures. He said to them, using one of their own uh, philosophers, Epimenides, he says, this is true. In Him, we live and move and have our being. God's not sort of out there completely uh, depending on us to somehow worship Him, to believe in Him. God doesn't need our belief. On the contrary, we desperately need God. We can't have anything. We don't exist apart from the sovereign will of God. It's amazing to think about that. No one exists at the subatomic level. None of us exists apart from the sovereign hand 
of the Almighty God who created us. We live and move and have our being in Him. And we won't understand God unless we understand that. If God is some sort of national hero or the figurehead for our political party, or if He's somehow uh, someone that, that I look to as my buddy, or someone that I run to uh, when, when I want something. No, the, the God with whom we deal in the Scriptures, whom we see perfectly in Christ, is a God who sustains everything. And he's, he's, He is more close than we can imagine. Paul could say that to a marketplace full of pagans. That unknown God knew them. And the apostolic prescription to the ailment of Athens was to proclaim him. So if if Paul noticed the unknown God and if he was provoked by the idolatry of the Athenians, how did Paul deal with them? Well, he dealt with them the way Jesus did. Even though he was provoked, provoked to anger made him angry to see idolatry. How did Paul deal with them? He dealt, dealt with them with incredible patience. I mean, he may have said other things, but what we're taught here, what is described here, is apostolic patience. And I think that's a very important word for us if we're going to understand mission in the 21st century. Really, there's a great need for patience and love in the midst of our deep, deep anger about the idolatry of the world. Paul didn't shout epithets at them. He, he didn't scream at all. He proclaimed. He spoke true words to them that transform lives. That's how Paul responded to the world in which he saw in Athens. And that's the way we should respond to the crazy world where we live, with patience, with reasonableness. If you remember, Paul in Philippians told the Philippian Christians to let their reasonableness be evident to all. Same thing he taught the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, he does in Acts chapter 17. He spoke the truth. He named it. He spoke the truth, but he did it in love. He did it patiently. You know, as we try to live that out at Metrocrest, as we try to live out our mission in North Carrollton, in the Metrocrest communities, I pray we will do it like Paul did in Athens. That we will, we will observe, we will, we will speak the truth, and we will do it with great patience and love. That we will engage people where they are, that we will bring to them the life-changing, life-transforming truth of Jesus Christ. The difference he made to Larry, the difference he made to you and to me, to all of us, that Christ loves us has a plan for us and calls us to be a part of his plan in the world. That's the mission that I hope we'll see lived out here at Metrocrest more and more, that we'll be a church that 
boldly proclaims Jesus Christ. That it's lived out in every level of ministry at our church. And that it's lived out in your life and mine, in word and in deed, that we will be, like Paul was in Athens, boldly patient proclaimers of the truth. Finally, Paul engages specifically this idea of the resurrection. Look at what he says in beginning in verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And notice what he describes Jesus' resurrection. By a man whom he has appointed... And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Up until Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection, Paul characterizes that as a time of ignorance. But now, Christ has come into the world. He taught us the truth with incredible love and patience and boldness and truthfulness. He died and he was raised. And according to Paul, his being raised from the dead, not just a resuscitated corpse, but the beginning of a radical new creation. Jesus is being raised to this resurrection life and then demonstrating it to his apostles. That is God showing that Jesus is exactly who he has said he is. The resurrection is the ultimate evidence that everything Jesus Christ ever said and ever did, everything the scriptures have said about him, all of it is confirmed. It's like a giant seal of approval. This is true. Listen to this man. The resurrection is the evidence of that. And to this day, the resurrection stands out. People reflect on everything in the Christian life in light of the resurrection. I've shared already a couple of times, but it, 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 it registered in my mind so, so powerfully. A bishop of the church coming to a Christian community on Easter Sunday to deny the resurrection of Jesus. That is evil and darkness in its most obvious form, to deny the resurrection of Jesus by a man wearing a purple shirt breaks my heart. And believe me, it's only gotten worse in the 30 years since I saw it with my own eyes. People denying the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that's exactly what happened in uh, Athens. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. This day there are people who hear about the resurrection and they mock the resurrection. In, in getting ready for this morning, I was looking at a whole bunch of different blogs, what people are saying today, 2021, about the resurrection. And let me tell you, mocking would be a, a mild word for what people say about the resurrection. Maybe you've heard it from people. It's laughable. It is absolutely laughable to many people. An object of derision and mockery. And that was true in Athens as well. This intellectual capital of the ancient world. They mocked the resurrection. 
There were a few, it says, who said, uh, we will hear you again about this. Uh, the idea is a little bit of dismissiveness. They weren't willing to mock the resurrection openly, but they just didn't take it very seriously. I've seen a lot of that too. Sadly, I've seen that in church life. People just, you know, I'm not going to think about it. I, I'm not really going to talk about it or think about it. I'll maybe listen to you again if you insist on talking about it. That's, that's the image because Paul, it says, went out from their midst. <laughs> Those who mock the resurrection, those who dismiss the resurrection, well, it doesn't say he threw anything at them, didn't ball them out, but he left from their midst. He went on to more fruitful pastures. Fortunately, in verse 34, it says, Some men joined him and believed, among whom also, and this is significant, Dionysius the Arapagite, he was a Gentile, he had a, the name of a Greek god as his name, Dionysius, is converted to Christ. Along with a woman named Damaris and others with them. In Athens, a man whose name came from a Greek god and a, and a woman who's, who all we know about her is she was a Gentile, Damaris. They were among those, there were others as well, who were converted to Christ. You see, there's a ridiculousness about their resurrection, and there's also a reasonableness. And you know what the difference is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. To the the pagan mind unaided, to the pagan mind undisposed, the pagan mind that rejects the work of the Holy Spirit, The resurrection is ridiculous. It's laughable. But to those who are humble, to those who submit, who are there and open to hearing, well, there's a reasonableness to the resurrection. There's an attractiveness to the resurrection. The resurrection becomes the symbol of what it is meant to be the symbol of. The power of Christ who he really is, and the difference he makes to your life and mine. It's infinitely reasonable. It makes perfect sense as we look at the story of Jesus' resurrection and as we reflect on it in our day. So my my prayer is that, that we will boldly proclaim Christ, that we will pray to the sovereign Lord to work in us and through us, around us, among us, and if necessary, in spite of us, to bring people to Christ, to bring people to a place where they are open to hear God's commandment. Repentance is not a suggestion. Repentance is not a nice thing to do. Repentance is the commandment of the sovereign God who created us and sustains us, and He calls us, He commands us to bow before Jesus, to acknowledge who Jesus is, to repent, because that man who died on the cross and was raised from the dead will return one day in glory. And 2,000 years later, we're, we're still waiting. But let me tell you, he is closer right now than he was at the beginning of this sermon. He draws near. The timing's not our business, but the promise is. The mission is. His mission does matter for eternity.